anyway, good times uh, had by all. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we've been working through the gospel of John, and it just so happens that where we're at lines up with Easter. I mean, this is great. Actually, there's going to be, we're going to hit this, and then then Jesus decides to, um, John decides to record like four chapters of Jesus' teaching before so much of the gospel of John is just the last night of the life of Jesus. And so we're going to, on Easter morning, we're going to fast forward to the resurrection and then circle back to the great teaching in the upper room discourse. Um, But for today, we have this great passage about the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. And our neighbors next door provide our palms every year. I come with my loppers and I, hey, you know, we, we get our palms. So say thank you to those guys. Anyway, if you have your Bibles, we'll be looking in John chapter 12. Brian read this for us this morning. What I want to do is just walk through this. We're going to hit the triumphal entry, but also some other things. And it's interesting, in chapter 12 is one of the most pivotal chapters in the gospel of John, that we have shifts, things that Jesus said, it's not time. Now he's going to say it is time where he's been kind of quiet about his kingship, now he's going to be entering in in a triumphal entry. We have a shift that's going on, and what we want to do is just pay attention to what has gone on, and what does that mean for Jesus in this time, and then what does that also mean for us as we follow him, and as we enter into a week of thinking about and reflecting on this entry, but also knowing that Good Friday is looming on the horizon, and we're going to see that popping up here in this passage, but also just the joy of Easter that's coming next week. So let's take a look at this and let's note this. So chapter 12, verse 12, and it says this, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So a little bit of the scene here as we think about this and we cross over this kind of uh, the, the geographical boundaries, we're in North America, they're in Israel, they're speaking Aramaic, we're speaking English, they're in a different a Middle Eastern culture, we're in more of a Western culture, so a little bit of this, this Passover and bridging this gap. So the Passover season, as we think about a large crowd in Jerusalem, the population of Jerusalem tended to be about 100,000 people back in the day at that time, but during the Passover, the amount of people in the city and around the city would double or even triple. People would come from all around, up in Galilee, down from the south, Jews from all over the empire would come back to Jerusalem for this, this time. Now, one, of the, one historian, historian, Josephus, he claimed that there were two, over two million people present for one Passover, and he was probably exaggerating. Josephus was a bit of an exaggerator, but anyway, think, think this. Think of, you know, um, if you ever, if Los Angeles hosts the Super Bowl, right? A lot of people come into town, or like back when the Angels hosted the All-Star Game, a lot of people would come into town, right? If, in, in, uh, when we hosted the Olympics, right? A lot of people come into town. It kind of swells up. Now, we, all, we have the hospitality industry and hotels, but back in the day, where did all these people stay? Some of them might have stayed with relatives in the city, but the vast majority of them, if they were coming as pilgrims, they would have just camped out in the hillsides around the city of Jerusalem. And you would have just had this swelling of population and these many kind of encampments popping up around the city. 
And what would also happen during this time, because this, this, a lot of people, like there's, it kind of becomes this little powder keg, and what would happen is the Romans who are occupying the land, their base of operations was over on the coast in Caesarea, but what they would do around these times of these great feasts is they would bring up this big entourage, and whoever the governor was or the prefect was, they would come in this kind of procession from the sea, and they would come up into Jerusalem on horses and chariots to make a show like, hey, everybody, we're in charge, and we got all these people here. You can be on the hillsides, but we're in charge. And this kind of this time of the Passover, the swelling crowds, was a little bit of time of nail-biting for the Jewish leaders. Because they were like, there were all these people there for religious reasons and, and the zeal that goes with that. But there were also people there that were there for political reasons, like Pontius Pilate. And there are people there that, are, that might, might have even had issues with the Roman government or with all these people. But they want this feast to go on, but it's a little bit of this time where like, you know when you ever you have guests in your house? and people stay, your just kind of anxiety level goes up a little bit. Okay, that's just me then, okay? You guys, you're all fine with the full house, and maybe there's a little bit, it's a little bit of excitement, a little bit of anxiety. That's all what's going on. So you think about this. So imagine this, okay? What is Passover? Passover is like, it's like Christmas, the 4th of July, and election day all happening in the same week. Okay, think about that. That's kind of the feel if you could put all this together. Now, just imagine then on top of that is that maybe a week or so earlier, Jesus had showed up and raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, you imagine the kind of excitement, the kind of, the kind of tension, the kind of anticipation that's going on in this moment that John is bringing us to. And so it says that this large crowd had come to the feast but they heard, they're down in Jerusalem, but they heard up over the Mount of Olives that this guy Jesus in Bethany, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And that night before, the very night before this passage happens, is when Mary, or Mary and Mary, of Mary and Martha, when she anoints Jesus. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So John describes two crowds coming. Look at 1217. There are pilgrims that had come to the feast, but there are also those who had seen Lazarus raised. Look at 1217. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went out of Jerusalem to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So you have coming over the hill from Bethany, you have all these people who saw Lazarus raised and they're coming with Jesus. And then coming out of the city are all these pilgrims coming up on the Mount of Olives to meet Jesus. So you have these two crowds kind of converging in this Christmas, 4th of July, election day kind of anticipation. And what do they say and what does it mean? And what does Jesus think about it? That's what I want, to, I want to talk first about that, okay? So what do they say, what does it mean, and what does Jesus think about this? And so what they, this is what happens, look at verse 13, okay? So they took branches of palm trees, they went over to our neighbor's house, and they got their clippers, okay? And they lopped off these palm fronds, date palms, date palms is what we would have. And they went out, uh, so they, and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. All right. All right, we're going to go geek mode just for a second, so hang on, okay? 
You don't have to turn off, but just hang with me, okay? So palms. What's the deal with palms, okay? Now, here's the deal. It's Palm Sunday, and you're like, of course it's palms. Did you guys know that in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they do not mention palms? It's only mentioned that they put down leafy branches and their cloaks. Only John records palms, and yet it wins the day, right? We don't call it Leafy Branch Sunday, right? It's Palm Sunday. So what's the deal with palms? And here's the thing, it's not that, it's not, it's all four Gospels record this event, and there are people probably laying down cloaks and laying down branches to keep the dust down, essentially, but why palms? John is particular that there are palms, and the answer to that is that palms Even though in the Old Testament, you don't have a lot of talk about palms, but during the intertestamental period, palms had become a symbol of kind of nationalistic fervor. When the Maccabees retake the temple and they light the lamps and the lamps miraculously stay on, you know, Hanukkah, that that whole thing, the relighting of the lamps, when the Maccabees do that and and they liberate Jerusalem from the Greek rulers, people take palms and they start waving them around. It's a nationalistic Sal- salvation, it's basically like, it, it, it becomes, so when the, when the rebels take over and they mint coins, do you know what image they put on them? Palms. And that happens in both Jewish rebellions. Palms become a symbol of kind of a national identity. And John wants to make it clear that these people, you all know they're, they've got their leafy branches and their, and their cloaks, but they're waving palms. It would be like It would be like on the 4th of July, people waving flags, okay? That's what, so John wants to make it clear, they are waving palms, that this is a, this has nationalistic overtones, what's going on here, okay? But they also are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna in Aramaic means, save us now, save us now. And it's from, it's from, if you're keeping score at home, Psalm 118, 25 and 26. It says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if we were already nerd alert, we're going deeper into the weeds here, okay? Hang with me, okay? Hang with me. So, during the festivals, like the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, as well as Passover, every morning, the priests of the temple would recite and sing what is called the Halal, which is Psalm 113, to Psalm, uh, what is it, 113 to 118. It's the halal. Halal means praise. And all of these psalms, if you look at those psalms, they all have some form of the Hebrew word halal or hallelujah. Okay, that's the halal. So all of these psalms would be praise. And during these feasts, they would sing the halal. And when the priests would recite it, um, Jewish men and boys would have what they call a lulav. And it was, it was kind of this... this Um, this grouping of like willow branches and myrtle leaves tied up with palm. And when the priest would come to these verses in Psalm 18, all the men and boys would take their lulavs and they would say, Hosanna, Hosanna. So much so, so much was the tying together that people would actually call their lulavs Hosannas. So they would all have these, these things that they would wave in the air with these praise psalms and they would call Hosanna, Hosanna. So the crowd, what the crowd is doing is the priests are not reciting the halal, the crowds are reciting the halal, and they're taking their, their lulabs and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Like, 
you guys got to get this. Like, it's like they're waving flags and praising the Lord all at the same time. And Jesus is coming down the hill. Now, here's the deal. Psalm 118 says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What it does not say is blessed is the king of Israel. The crowd adds that in. So, look, you got, we got to get a sense of what's happening here. It's Christmas, the 4th of July, election week. People are waving flags and worshiping God and saying, here's our king. Here's our king. I mean, if, if people, if this is a nail biter for the Jewish leaders, this is like, this is all their worst fears come to life. I mean, even later on, I think there's this great ironic statement. If you look down, uh, if, it, one of the things about John that has been so awesome is just the, the sarcasm um, in verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Like you have to get a sense like this guy, everybody is going after this guy. And so this is the anticipation is just, is, is really crescendoing during this time. Here is our king. Here is our king. So what does Jesus do? Now, in the past, in the, in the Gospel of John, if you've been following along, when people, like in, Acts, in uh, John chapter 6, when he feeds the 5,000, everybody's like, could this be the prophet who's coming to the world? And they say, let's make him king, let's make him king. What does Jesus do? He slips off, to this, he slips off and gets away so they cannot make him king. Now here, we're not going to see that. Jesus is not going to slip off to the side. I don't know if he could at this point. Like, how do you slip off? Like, it's the Mount of Olives. Like, you're, you're, they're going to find you, right? But what he does is he redirects them. He redirects them. And this is what he does. Look at 1214. Jesus finds a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it's written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. All right, here's the deal. These sort of triumphal entries in the ancient world happened all the time. Kings would go out, they'd conquer, and as they come back into the city, the city, the city citizens would go out to greet their conquering king and bring them in. That's exactly what's being described here. They're going out of the city to meet the king and bring him in. This is a triumphal entry. But here's the deal. If you were a conquering king, what you would do when you were having your triumphal entry is you would be on a war horse. You would be in a chariot. You would be arrayed for battle. And probably the Romans on the other side of town, because if you come from the sea, you come in the other side of town, they're probably all decked out. They got their banners and they got their, you know, all the crests and they got their armor on and they got their war horses and their chariots. And here's Jesus and what does he do? Find me a baby donkey. What Jesus is doing is he is completely redirecting this crowd. I am a king, but I am not the king you think I should be. I will not ride a war horse. Now look, in Revelation, the book of Revelation, Jesus will ride a war horse. And on his thigh will be tattooed King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he will come and make all things right. Make no mistake. But until that day, Jesus does not ride a war horse. Let me make this clear. 
until the day that God makes all things right, Jesus redirects and will not ride a war horse. He will remind them by coming on a donkey, what he reminds them is, I have come in peace. I have come to bring peace. I have not come to bring war. I have not come, I have not come to destroy. I have come to give life. And this, this is one of the things about the kingdom of God that we have to get deep into our soul because our tendencies can be to find, to find the powerful and to find those who have the means to, by which to make things right by their own power. Jesus says, find me a young donkey. The furthest thing from a war horse that we can find, let's find that, and that's what I'm going to ride in on. And what he does is he reminds them, these, the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah, I want, what I want you to do is I want, to, I want you to focus on, I want you to focus on the Zechariah, I want you to focus on the Zechariah 9.9 prophecy. Rejoice, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even a donkey's child on the foal of a donkey. Jesus is coming not as a war hero, but as a king who is bringing peace. He comes in peace. And this is significant, this is important, because for all the nationalistic fervor, what Jesus is doing here by finding this young donkey is redirecting them toward this Old Testament prophecy, but also redirecting them away from their, this kind of zeal, this violent zeal that they are looking for. All right. This is tough. I, I, I read one commentary that if you read the Gospel of John and you read John chapter 12, there will be something in John chapter 12 that someone does that makes you angry. Whether it's Mary and the costly perfume, whether it's Jesus not coming in on a war horse, whether it is the idea that he is, he is going to be lifted up in crucifixion, there's something in here that is not going to, to land well. So I understand that. And even the idea that I'm talking about, like the church, I, look, the church should never ride a war horse, everybody. The church should never ride a war horse. Look, there's, there's issues about defending and things like that, but our job is to love. Love God, love others, love orange. Our, our, our purpose statement at this church is not destroy others, destroy your opponents, hammer your enemies. I mean, that would be an interesting church to go to, right? Right? It's not it. Love God, love others, love orange. That is the kingdom of God. And it's going to feel hard sometimes. Even right now, you might be like, well, what about our military? And what about this? Look, the nation can do what it wants, but our people need to love. They will know that you are Christians by your love. I love this uh, Mother Teresa um, in Calcutta, where the sisters are, where she, was, um, where she did her work. As you go out the door, there's an archway, and on the archway is a quote from Mother Teresa, and it says, as, these, as the nuns would go out to serve the poor and the dying and the sick, this phrase says, um, today there are no great things, only small things 
done with great love. I think when we, when we see Jesus come in, we're like, yeah, come on, palm branches. Right? I mean, how much, I, I feel like that sometimes. I'm like, Jesus, come and make all things right. Come. There's so many annoying people in this world, right? You're like, Jesus, come on. And Jesus, and, and Jesus, look, there will be a day, but until that day, Jesus is like, hey, I came for the wicked. I came for those who are far off. Nobody's going to stand with me on this. The church never rides a war horse. Humble. Seated on a donkey. With acts of great love. We follow our master. Let's keep going. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, a king. But not a king who brings war, but a king who brings peace. Who comes in peace and brings peace, and he wants to make it clear what kind of a king he is. And then something happens that shifts the tide in the book. Look at uh, John 12, 20. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jews. Everybody so far is Jewish, and you've got the Samaritans, a Samaritan woman, but everybody has been Jewish up to this point. And these Greeks, they come and they see Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee. They probably come to Philip because he's got a Greek name. And Bethsaida is in the region, of kind of in Galilee, uh, where the, the Gentiles would be. And they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, which is how it worked in chapter 1, if you remember. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come. So what's going on? So, so here's the deal. The arrival of Gentiles... The arrival of Gentiles, they come. And even the idea that the, the Pharisees say, hey, the world has gone after him. Like the world is a theme. It's all those who are against God. God so loved the world, but now the world has gone after Jesus. And these Greeks, these Gentiles are coming. And this is a sign. For some reason or another, Jesus sees this as a sign that because before this, you know, in, in, when Mary's like, hey, they ran out of wine, what does he say? My hour has not yet come. It's not time, Mom. And then later on, he says, the hour has not yet come in 421, 423, 730, 820. Five times he has said, the hour has not yet come. But the Gentiles come to him and he's like, it's time. It's time. There's a shift, an arrival. It's the arrival of this kind of sober and sombering moment. The hour has come. And Jesus now begins to talk about what is going to happen? Now that the hour has come, what is going to happen? He's going to begin to reflect, and he's actually become a little bit troubled even as he thinks about this. Look at what he says, 1224. The reality of what's going to come is now going to sink in on Jesus. Obviously, he knows this is coming, but now the reality is going to sink in 1224. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life, whoever loves his grain of wheat, will lose his grain of wheat. Whoever hates his life or loses his grain of wheat will keep it for eternal life. And in an agrarian society, there was this understanding. You would, you would farm and you would get all this grain, and you would use all that grain to do what? 
Come on, this is audience participation time. You would eat, what would you make? Bread, right? Blessed is the Lord God who brings forth bread from the earth, right? Grain means bread. And that's awesome. You take your grain, you take your harvest, and you make bread. You sell it, you use it, you make bread. But you can't use all of it to make bread. What do you need to do? You got to plant seeds for the next year. So you would take this, ma- this kind of mound of seeds that you could make a good loaf of bread out of, and you would sacrifice it to the earth, essentially. You would throw it away into the earth. You would plant it. You would give it up. And when one grain of seed, one grain of wheat, comes up from the earth, it produces a stalk with like 30-fold. 30 seeds come out of one seed. And in an agrarian society, these people would understand that, yeah, we have, we, we have to understand that you have to sacrifice in order to get more. And Jesus is playing on this idea to say, look, if, if a grain of wheat has to go down into the earth and die and then come up as something else to have bear much fruit, Jesus is noting a law, a law of the kingdom. This is, this is a hard law in the kingdom of God, but it is a law in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, here is the law. New life can only come through death. And that's true of Jesus. Jesus will die. Jesus will die, and he will make it possible for us to live new life. He will sacrifice for our sins and bring us into new life. But we all know when you come to Jesus, look, when you come to Jesus, you die to yourself. If you come to Jesus to just say, I just need a little bit of help, Jesus. I got this, but I just need a little bit of help. Look, that's a pathway to death. Coming to Jesus is giving up everything to him, is dying. And I, I hate to break it to all of us, and I, have, I deal with this too, but it is a law of the kingdom. New life only comes through death. We die, we lose it, we lose our lives. And that's why Jesus goes on when he says in here, he goes, Earlier, he says, whoever wishes, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That if you want new life, it is going to cost everything. Salvation costs Jesus his life. And when we come in faith to him, we come in faith, we give, we say, I'm going to give you everything and I'm going to trust Jesus that you are going to give me life in return. But I know that I, this is a gamble. I'm giving you everything. And that's what faith is. It's a law of the kingdom of God. You don't get life unless death precedes it. And Jesus is going to have an authentic struggle with this law. Look at 1227. He says, my soul is troubled. And some people want to make light of this. And it is kind of interesting because it's a very, it's a quick verse. And the gospel of John does not have a Gethsemane account. Like all the synoptics, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's kneeling down. He's like, Father, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. And he goes back and he comes back another time. Take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. He goes back, comes back. Take this three times. Take this cup from me. He prays over and over and over. Take this cup from me. If there's any other possible way, take this cup from me. We don't, get in, we don't get that in the Gospel of John. We don't have that Gethsemane account. And we see in the Gospel of Luke, he is so troubled that he sweats drops of blood, is what Luke says. 
But we don't have that account. This is the closest thing that we have to the Gethsemane. And Jesus is troubled, and we get a little sense of the conversation that he has with himself. As he's reflecting on this, the hour has come, which means now the grain of wheat has to die. Crucifixion is coming, and he starts to reflect. And he's like, my soul is troubled. What, what will I say? Should I say, Father, save me? But this is why I came. Like, should I say, Father, save me? But then, like, you can imagine just the back and forth of this. All the way from take this cup from me, but whatever your will is, let it be done. That's what's going on here, this back and forth, this back and forth. And we realize in the synoptics, it's a much longer process for Jesus. Jesus is not just stoic and docetic and like, I can do anything. I am ready to give my, like, he is a human being struggling with the obedience to what he has come, but he ultimately resolves with this. And he's like, what should I say? What should I say? Father, glorify your name. That's what he comes, that's the conclusion that he comes to. And then 1228. Boom! A voice from heaven. By the way, there's only two other times where a voice from heaven comes down. The baptism and the transfiguration. John doesn't record either of those. But John records this as a moment of confirmation. A moment where the Father is saying, I hear you. The voice says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Probably the idea that I sent you into the world and I'm going to raise you up and I'm going to glorify my name through you, son. The crowd that stood there heard it. They said it had thundered, hence the boom. And others said an angel has spoken to them, a misunderstanding. And so this idea of my soul is troubled, disturbed, unsettled, real grief, real anxiety, real dread. Glorify your name. So this is a pretty significant moment that we have. We have the triumphal entry, this huge event. Jesus redirects them. The Greeks, the Gentiles come. My hour has come. Father, how should I pray? A voice from heaven. Chapter 12 is a major turning point in the gospel of John. And look at the rest of the chapter. Verse 30. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world can be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And that I just want to focus on as we kind of wrap this up. This idea of being lifted up from the earth, that this, um, this idea of when I am lifted up from the earth, lifted up has a double meaning in the Gospel of John. Um, back in, in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus talks about when Moses lifted up the serpent, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and he put the snake on the pole, and everybody who looked at the snake would be saved. But now the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man must be lifted up, exalted, is one meaning, but also the Son of Man must be lifted up onto a cross. That lifting up is both exaltation and shame. And John does this very interesting thing. The moment of Jesus' greatest glorification is also his moment of greatest shame. There we go. 
Jesus' moment of greatest glorification will also be Jesus' greatest moment of shame. A couple of points of application just for us as we, as we kind of um, wrap this up. And we've, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper today. But um, we already talked about this, this rule of the kingdom, that new life is offered to others through the death of Jesus. New life comes through death. The grain of wheat dies. The lifting up draws other people, draws all Okay. We also know that we receive new life when we give our lives away in faith to Jesus. Whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And this is a, this is a law of the kingdom as well, that the pathway to glorification is also the same pathway of self-emptying. We talked about Philippians 2 a couple of years ago at the Easter season, and that is this idea that Jesus, although being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but he emptied himself. He took on the, the appearance as a human being, not just as a human being, but as a slave. And even not just as a slave, but a slave obedient to death, even death on a cross. Self-emptying. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. The pathway, the pathway to exaltation and glorification, the pathway to honor in the kingdom of God is the pathway of self-emptying. It's counterintuitive. If you want life, you've got to die. If you want glorification, you've got to empty yourself. And this is not just true for Jesus. It's obviously, Jesus is the example. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, right? We, we follow his example. I want you to have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul says. But this is, this is for us. This is our path in the kingdom. As we follow him, a pathway, to, a pathway to life and happiness and love and joy is not the path of just grabbing everything we can for ourselves. It is the path of self-emptying. Oftentimes, the people who are most happy and content in their lives are the ones who are giving it away to other people. They are giving love and receiving love. They are not gathering it for themselves. Triumphant, but on a donkey. That's the path of the church. That's the path of us as the followers of Jesus. And as we enter into this week, and as we move through this week, and as we have a chance to reflect on Jesus with Good Friday on Friday night at 7 o'clock in here, we'll be reflecting on the death of Jesus, the self-emptying of Jesus. But on Easter morning, we'll come in here. We'll eat, well, first, we'll eat pancakes. Which, anyway. And then we'll come in here, and we will just lift our voices because God has done a great work. See, we might not do great things, but God does great things. We do small things in love. He does great things in love. And when he raised Jesus up, he said, look, the pathway, the pathway is not what you thought it was. And if you want true life, you die. If you want real happiness, you empty yourself. And Jesus becomes our example of that, but also our hero, also the one who purchases, purchases us for his Father. We are reconciled to the Father through the work of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and on Easter morning, we're going to have a chance to celebrate that.